We're going to skip around a little bit this morning. For those of you following along with your Bibles, uh, as we continue through uh, Acts, we're going to look briefly in Acts 21, Acts 22, and Acts 23, these three chapters here this morning. Uh, Basically, I want to start out this morning with a a thought process. I want to get some ideas in your mind. And that idea would be, what does it mean to set your face like flint or to move resolutely or to take a firm, strong stand and move forward? What does it actually look like in your life when you say, you know what, I can do nothing else. Uh, Here is where I draw the line. I I can't think a certain way or I can't act a certain way. Uh, I refuse to purchase or buy. I refuse to go or spend. I, I refuse. Here is where I draw the line. Ask the children in my house. We draw the line at when I say get in the shower, I mean take your clothes off first. I mean get in the shower and get under the water. I mean then apply soap liberally all over the body. I I mean then rinse completely with your face in the water. This is resolute. I draw a line. You cannot say, well, I was near the water. I got in and hopped out. No, I need you to shower. You smell. Right? Okay, I mean, so there's certain rules, right? In certain places, times in your house, there are, your parents were resolute about things, Right? And maybe it has to do with holidays. Look, there are certain ways that this is going to go. Maybe it's Sunday mornings. Your parents were resolute in the fact that, hey, it is Sunday. I don't care how late you stayed out the night before. I don't care what you did the night before. We are going to church. Resolute. Sometimes it's a little deeper than that, right? It's not just home or household rules. It's not just even how our family reacts uh, to to, uh, stimuli that are in our our community. It's not just how we act because this is how the neighbors act. No, it comes down to a lot of times a resoluteness that says there is a standard that I'm not willing to cross. There is a standard by which I am willing even to die. Brothers and sisters who are in arms together in the military oftentimes share this resoluteness to say, I will guard and protect my brother or sister in arms. Our police and fire, our EMS professionals, they will say, I am here to guard, to serve, and to protect. I will absolutely put my life on the line. between a mother and her child you will see mama bear come out you did not just pick on my son in the early 1500s Martin Luther was a priest And as he was taught to lead the people in his local area in worship, he taught them over and over, follow what the church has taught you. The church has an authority. The Bible has an authority. But even in his day, the Pope has an authority. 
Now, I know I'm not talking to people who were bred, okay, raised Lutheran. I know a lot of us in this congregation have some Catholic background, and so I want you to have open ears this morning as you hear about this Reformation, as you hear about Martin Luther taking a stand. Because this is what happened. This is what needed to happen. He was not the first reformer. By, by no means was he the first in the Catholic Church to say, Pope, bishops, priests, you guys are focused on things that don't need to be focused on. John Hess, one of the first reformers, was burned at the stake for being a heretic. Simply was told, no, we're not listening to this. When Luther comes onto the scene, he is not the first reformer, but he is one that continues down a line that says, I tell you what, church, you're telling people that they can be forgiven if they buy what's called an indulgence. If you'll contribute money to the church, if you'll help us build the cathedrals, then I will give you a slip of paper that says your sins are forgiven. Now, before you answer this next question, I want you to think about this. Wouldn't it be easy if you all just came to church, if you said, okay, I had a, about an 80% good week, so 20% not real good, and a 20% not good week costs about oh, $40. And you said, so when the offering plate went by, you said, 40 bucks, here we go. I put 40 bucks in, and then you were forgiven. And you got, even got a slip of paper afterwards that said, for your $40 donation, no, beyond a shadow of a doubt, your sins are forgiven. How many of you would just feel so much better about that process? I, it doesn't do it for me. Even if it were like $5, even if it were like $2, it wouldn't, it wouldn't do it for me. I would not feel as if the right exchange has happened. Because quite frankly, the way I've sinned this week, I could have paid $1,000. And it wouldn't be worth Jesus' life. If I had $10,000, if I had $100,000, it wouldn't pay for my sin. And that's the issue. The church began to get off track and began to teach that what could happen is, is that you could pay for the forgiveness of your sins. Down deep inside of Catholic doctrine is this belief that you actually have to show your worthiness to receive God's grace. Which means you have to do good stuff. And that's a, that's a hard thing because I'll be honest with you, this is why I struggle, this is why Luther struggled. His struggle was... I'm never good enough. The good stuff I do never measures up. And Luther was frustrated. He began to do more and more good works. As a priest in the Catholic Church, he began to do more and more things, feeding more and more of the poor, forgiving sins of all of those who were downtrodden. He began to actually say, you need to read the Word of God because there's grace and peace and mercy here. And as he translated it into the German tongue, he got it printed so that people could read it on their own. And that's when he realized, wait a minute. We've got to get the Word of God into people's lives. 
And they don't have to try to earn it, and they don't have to try to buy it. They just need to read it and let the Word of God soak them in grace. And so, 498 years ago, Luther boldly went to Wittenberg's door, the castle, and he posted 95 theses to the Catholic Church saying, these are 95 things that have got to change. They're wrong. They don't fit Holy Scripture. You're leading people astray. You're burdening consciences. You have people that are, want nothing to do with the church, let alone Jesus. You're missing the point. Fifteen hundred years before, the Apostle Paul is railing against Christians. The church, as it was known that day in the Jewish synagogues, Paul would stand and say, anyone believes in this Jesus as the Savior? No, let's get rid of him. He stood while Stephen was stoned because of his proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And because of that, Paul too, at that time known as Saul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus, calls him out, makes him blind, says, Paul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Don't you know I'm the Jesus? And there Saul becomes Paul, coming in faith. We hear in chapter 22, or in uh, 32, sorry. My numbers are all messed up. 22. Verse 16, where Paul recounts his conversion. And he says that the Lord Jesus spoke to me. He says, why? Why do you persecute me in verse 7? Now, Paul at this time says, who are you? And he answers, well, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then he says, what should I do, Lord? And he says, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that you have to do that has been assigned to you. That struck me this week as I was reading it. Because I'm reminded over and over that what Paul did, this journey that he is now moving to Jerusalem, this stand that he is about to take, even when his brothers and sisters in Christ are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. He's basically saying, I have to go. Do you not remember that at my conversion, Jesus himself said, go tell Paul how much he must suffer for my name. Here, Paul's recounting it. Hey, I know that I have things that have been assigned for me to do. I want you to understand something that Luther writes in some of his private writings, very similar words when he says, I realized that though the Catholic Church was my mother church, I had to take a stand. Paul realizes, I have to take a stand. I cannot let the Jews and the Jewish synagogues continue to preach saying, well, we're still waiting on a Messiah when the Messiah has come. I can't do it. I can't teach something that isn't real. 
And Luther, again, years later, saying, I can no longer let an entire church be wrong. I've got to preach the truth. Both men resolute. Both men taking firm foundation in the Word of God and say, here is where I stand. It's interesting to note if you parallel Jesus and Paul's life, you'll notice similarities when it gets down towards the end of each of their lives. They both meet with a local governor. They both meet with a regional governor. They both meet in a bigger way with the overarching ruler of the area. And in all of those places, both, all three times, it is responded, I find nothing wrong with this man that deserves death. Both for Jesus and for Paul, no, this seems okay, the rulers say. But both Jesus and Paul knew that what the gospel does, you see, when you push with grace, when you push with forgiveness, when you push with second chances, when you push not to the letter of the law, but giving people reprieve, when you push with that, people are uncomfortable. People don't like it. Well, no, I'd rather have a set of rules that I can follow. That way I know, well, let's see, there's 52 weeks a year. If I go to church 48 out of 52, that gives me four weeks off. I'm still good, right? Why do we care about how many Sundays we go to church? As if keeping a tally sheet, God is up there going, well, all right, 48 out of 52, you pass, come on in. No. You see, by nature, our sinful nature says we want to follow the law. But what these two examples, we're looking at Paul, we're looking at Jesus, what they're saying is, is no, it's by, by grace. In verse 16 of 22, Paul recounts, and now that you are, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on Jesus' name. It's simple, actually. We tend to complicate it with what is the name of our church, or what is the doctrine that we follow, or what is the liturgy of the service, or what is the order. We tend to complicate it with all of the outward kinds of things, and they're important. It's good to have good order. It's, it's great to have different colors up here. It makes people go, oh, well, something a little different today. Maybe I'll pay attention. I mean, I'm all for that. Except when we make these things more important than get up, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In chapter 23, verse 6, Paul, knowing that some of these people that he's uh, talking to our Sadducees and Pharisees says, I stand on trial because of the hope that I have in the resurrection of the dead. This is a linchpin moment. You see, the Sadducees don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They just believe that your body goes into the grave, you, you go to dust, and that your spirit rises and go to heaven if you believe in God. The Sadducees don't even believe that there is a, a, angels and spirit of God to impact the world. So they, they ignore parts of Scripture. The Sadducees were so far out in left field. The Pharisees, we go, oh, well, they must have been a whole lot better. The problem with the Pharisees were is that they came up with 641 extra laws than the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so that they wouldn't even get near to breaking the Ten Commandments. 
There were sects of the Pharisees that would not look at any woman that wasn't their wife. Affectionately, they are known as the bloody Pharisees because as they walked down the street and a woman would be coming, they would turn their head and routinely walk into buildings. I kid you not. So the Sadducees don't believe in a bodily resurrection. The Pharisees believe that the way you get to the resurrection is by following the law. And you see that most religions have devolved or evolved down to those kinds of things. Either it's, it's mandatory on what you believe and, how, and what you do to get to heaven. Or it doesn't matter at all what you believe. That's what I've noticed. And so, if you're left with a religion that says, well, it's based on all the good that you do, how many of you are 100% perfect? There's none. So I guess none of us are going. And if it's based on what you personally think, well, let's see, there's about 350 chairs, I'm guessing there's uh, maybe, maybe between 50 blanks, so about 300 of us in here this morning, um, so there must be about 300 different ways of getting to heaven, because if you're your own God, if you set your own truth, if you determine how to get to heaven, there must be 300 different ways, so hey, good for you! You see, there's something that doesn't ring true there, this hollowness. What Paul says in chapter 21, he says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's our clue. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul writes to the church there, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Basically, Paul was saying, I stand my ground. Here is what I can tell you, is that I believe in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and nothing else even matters. One of the things that came out of the Reformation was that cross. Prior to the Reformation, and if you grew up Catholic, you'll still notice that on most crosses in a Catholic church, there is a Jesus a figure hanging on the cross. It's called a crucifix. Because one of the main tenets and points of Catholic doctrine is that we, as believers in the Catholic Church, should be participating in the suffering and death of Jesus. Which is why even in Catholic doctrine with Holy Communion, you are re-sacrificing Jesus. You see, Catholic doctrine believes in the power of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. And so do we. But here's the difference. Part of what Luther taught us was Jesus is no longer on the cross. Yes, he died. He died a horrible death. And again, as I started out the sermon this morning, no amount of my money could have ever paid for his life. But the cross is empty, folks. When, when Paul writes, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified, he means the whole story. That Jesus was crucified, yes. He was placed in the tomb, yes. But the cross and the tomb are empty. And so each and every Easter, each and every Sunday, we are reminded, death is not the end. And so when Paul writes, 
The reason I'm being persecuted is because I have hope in the resurrection. Cancer doesn't win. Car accidents that take life, they don't win. Unknown diseases that are wasting away our body, they don't win. Old age, it doesn't win. Because I have hope in the resurrection. If Luther gave us anything nearly 500 years ago, it was hope again. What was reformed was a whole church, a whole nation, a whole world that could say, you know what, it isn't based on how good I am because I stink. And it isn't based on how much money I give because it could never be enough. And it isn't based on how much time I volunteer. It's based on the fact that my Jesus died on that cross, was placed in a tomb, and everybody thought it's over. And he stood. The cross was empty, the grave was empty, and now you're full, living, full with Jesus. You see, the hope of the resurrection says, it's not over. And when Jesus says, here's where I stand alive, you stand with him for eternity. The hope of the resurrection is what allows us to have our life, to live and breathe in the grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. To Him be the honor and the glory. Amen.